Welcome to the Basilica Conversation Series podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Oftmauer, co-founder and director of Basilica Hudson, a nonprofit multidisciplinary art center housed in a solar-powered, reclaimed 1880s industrial factory on the Hudson River in the city of Hudson, New York. I've been an artist and musician my whole life, and after traveling the world for almost two decades, playing bass in the rock bands Hole and the Smashing Pumpkins, then followed by my own solo career, I have now laid down some serious brick and mortar roots, and I'm seeing the world from a super local, place-based perspective here in Hudson. What inspired me to start this conversation series is the desire to listen and to learn, and to inspire and inform. This podcast is an opportunity to connect and converse on the power of arts and culture at the intersection of climate and social advocacy, highlighting people and organizations that reflect and inspire Basilica Hudson's mission to be a platform for independent and innovative voices. It is the Basilica Hudson Conversation Series Turn Podcast, my reaction to I miss everybody and COVID kept me on a computer screen. And in lieu, en lieu in French, of a haze-filled new wave dance party, I'm having Zoom tea with two fantastic um, men that I, first of all, I, I feel very blessed that they have been neighbors in a variety of capacities for for years in my life and creative uh positive forces and freaky forces like cool unique individuals that i've had the pleasure to feel like neighboring um comfort with is uh why i decided i wanted to celebrate the two of you introduce you although you've met little uh, lightly in the past in Hudson, I get to introduce two uh, unique men that share a love of opera and performance and, uh, and romance, I will dare to say. And um, what I would I also know about this month is it's pride month. And uh, if you don't mind me saying you're both gay. And Basilica is also celebrating subcultures. And as I was kind of wrapping my head around what are we're usually uh, in the month of June having our Freak Flag Day event, which is a counterculture response to Flag Day in Hudson, which is a big patriotic flag waving thing. So we started a Freak Flag Day, which is actually where we initially uh, really got to know RB because his wedding after party was at the Freak Flag Day party, which makes me believe that your anniversary is any minute, RB, is this true? Yes. <laughs> Happy anniversary. <laughs> um, and um, I'm going to ask you to both introduce yourselves and what your title is you know because I know you're I mean I think of RB as an opera director which I always thought seemed very exotic and mysterious Roddy is a legendary musician piano at the forefront but I also had the pleasure to to know that Roddy experiments in a lot of different kind of performance styles and 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 formats so uh, each give your, your name, maybe where you're from and what your title is when someone says, what do you do, Roddy Bottom? Yeah, my dad said that to me before he died. He was like, I finally like, and this was like way into like, I'd been playing in bands like my whole life since I was like, you know, 17 or whatever. And I was like, I don't know, probably 30. And my dad was like, I finally know what I can call you when my friends ask me what you do. I was like, oh, what? He's like, a musician. I was like, well, yeah. But it was so foreign to him that like a musician, like that's a job. Right. And that's sort of like an uh, important distinction in my life. Like to call myself a musician or a composer or a creator, I guess. But a musician specifically, it's like um, to own that sort of title and know that that, yeah, that's a legitimate place in society, the way that we see it. And uh, it's a legitimate job and a vocation. I think like, I don't know, I grew up sort of doing music in such a sort of like playful way that I never really considered it to be like valid. But like something when my dad said that, I was like, wow, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that is, that's my job. That's what I do in life. And I say a lot, like people ask me what I do and I say, yeah, I do music. Cause really I, I 
I'm not really capable of doing much more. Yep, and you do lots of different kinds of music, which we will get into. And neighbor RB, name, place of birth, what do you do? You got it. I'm RB Schlatter. I'm uh, originally from Cooperstown, New York, which is like two hours from where I am now. And um, this last year has really made me question, you know, who I am, what I am. Uh, I've always been kind of uncomfortable introducing myself as an opera director. I don't, and I, uh, you know, I guess that's something I could take to my therapist, but um, to answer, to answer your question, I think like now this past year is like, uh, I would introduce myself as a, as an artist first. Mm -hmm. And I think that performance and installation is where I meet up with opera as a passion. Um, I studied music when I was a child, played the piano, studied voice. Um, but I never really felt like a musician because I always shied away from the amount of discipline you need. I had like a lot of raw talent, which I was lucky to have, but I hated practicing. And so I knew that could never like be, be a title or a vocation, but uh, certainly- so Roddy proved you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I mean. Okay. Um, yeah, artist, I direct operas and um, I'm, a, I'm a, uh, a secret musician. And that's interesting. You said like the discipline, because I also went to a music school, but I went to a pretty like free art hippie music school. So there wasn't like the classical training component, but there was a really like encourage you to find your voice type of sure, school. Awesome. And it's like, as you're describing that, that says a lot about what you were raised in versus or what kind of education you were getting where like Roddy, I actually don't know, because I do want to know where you were at as a teen when you started playing in bands, but like when I started playing in bands as a teenager, it was because it was like, of course, it was never going to be a job or vocation, not in my mind either. But you also didn't have to be, as it sounds terrible, very good. You just <laughs> needed to have like a total passion and commitment to be with your people. Roddy, did you study music formally as a child? I did. From a really early age, I started playing piano just because I liked it a lot. And my mom was a really uh, talented piano player. So we kind of had a bond and I started taking piano lessons. I think my mom encouraged, like, I have three sisters and she encouraged us all to do it. The sisters all tried and none of them really like took to it. But I was the one that sort of like, I really got into it. I got into like classical and I was really into like, I was really diligent with rehearsal and like um, studying the music. It was just something that I, I always felt strongly about. I would like get up in the morning and it was classical piano and I would like do an hour before school and an hour when I got home and I was really into it. And I would compete with kids and like do classical like music camps. Stuff. Um, that's how I started doing. And then like a, a strong relationship with my mom it was sort of a family thing. Did you have a mentor, like a teacher or was it at a school? Like, was there, you know, I had a couple of teachers that I didn't really even get along with that. Well, it was just felt like uh, kind of just like a personal journey of my own. Like, you know, it was so much time, like as a gay kid too, I sort of equated somehow in that way. Like it was a time for me to like spend time by myself. Like I think back on that hour before school or an hour at home, like when I just played piano by myself and got to just kind of be by myself and be creative and, you know, as kind of fruity and whatever I wanted to do, it was like a sweet opportunity for a young kid, a young gay kid. I don't know why that comes up, but it does like mm -hmm. not so much about secrets or anything, but sort of just like a time for myself to indulge in, in a um, artistic or theatrical way felt important. And that was part of it for me. But as a mentor, I think my mom was just a big part of it. And the deep family, like there's one thing I know about you is you have big heart and big, you know, the way that you and I are, soul, sister, brother, whatever, um, neighbors, is that since my arrival in the U.S. in the mid-90s, through our mutual soul sister, Courtney Love, you've just been this, like, committed heart-soul friend to her. Um, you were both uh, wild, 
gothy San Francisco teens in the eighties together. Right. Um, and yeah. so did, so San Francisco for you, cause I'm imagining Cooperstown right now, the hall <laughs> of fame. home, yeah. And I actually would like to imagine Roddy, you know, coming out as a teen in, in California versus like RB Cooperstown, you know, is there subcultures? Is there alternative havens for you to find yourself in? Well, there's the uh, Glimmerglass Opera Company is there. Um, okay. So like cool. when I was a kid, there was this amazing opera company that was down like 10 minutes away from where I lived. And it was like perched right on the edge of the lake and this beautifully elegant, but um, not ostentatious building, opera house. And uh, one of its features was that the side walls of the auditorium would roll open and it was all screened in. So like when you arrived, it was all open and you were getting like a breeze blowing through and then kind of ritualistically right before the show, they would close and you'd be plunged into darkness and then taken into this, you know, decadent opera world, dramatic opera world. And then at the intermission, the walls would open back up and you'd be exposed to like a, you know, a hazy August day but um, I like totally lived for the subculture of the summer opera festival and like going and seeing four shows a year and then spending like the rest of the year, like waiting for the next season mm. and, you know, falling in love with like the opera singers. Cause to me, they were like totally rock stars and um, yeah, I just got totally hooked. And my parents wow. took me. My parents were really involved with the company when it started. They moved to town in the late 70s, right when this opera company was starting. And in the 70s, there were a lot of like small town opera companies uh, of like amateurs and professionals that were that were coming together. And there were just all these music enthusiasts who lived in Cherry Valley and in Cooperstown and right. um, a lot of like retired um, uh academics were there so it had a real like dramaturgical uh level to it where they were like the first company to be really interested in doing baroque opera which eventually became my passion um and and uh yeah but it was like not something that my friends went to you know or it definitely okay. wasn't you know it was like i was gay i was into classical music i was an only child i loved the opera like just building up layers and layers of, um, you know, not being able to connect to people in my, in my age group. <laughs> that is a great image. I'm seeing it all. I could see that as an opera being presented actually in yeah, terms totally. of that, that really <laughs> makes sense as to how you found your way. I didn't know that. Um, did you end up working with that company or do you work with that? Does it still exist? Yeah, totally. It uh, totally changed my life when I was 10 they were auditioning for like a young child to be in a Mozart opera. And the director's concept was that Mozart was like 18 when he wrote this opera. And so the director wanted to have like a, a young boy Mozart who would sort of run around the stage and push furniture around and, you know, lead the characters into contact with one another. And so I got cast and spent the summer like sitting in rehearsals, which was when I like discovered that there was such a thing as rehearsals and that there was an opera, there was this person who stood at the, you know, in the middle of the room and told everybody where to stand. And that was an opera director. And I just immediately knew that that was like my gig because I just, I don't know, it was, it was weird. It's like past life stuff. Yeah. I just was totally, sure. I knew that that was the thing to do. And um, well, you did an amazing job. The only opera, although you and I got close to trying to bring the Philip Glass opera that Rudy oh, Walser yeah. had written. So we almost brought an opera to Basilica, which doesn't mean we can't in the future. We're hoping that we can. But your Susan B. Anthony uh, opera that's on the sign behind you was such an incredible um uh, It was at the Hudson Hall in, in Hudson and your whole layout of the crowd as you know i love non-stage performances yes. and how we put together drone but it was just like this incredible audience woven into the performers and that you casted uh not all mostly not professionals right so you had this like it was so accessible creative avant-garde really to me gave an incredible uh, 
you know, seeing where the future of opera could be going, not even knowing much about the past. So I want to share, do you, do you have like an anecdote of like, if that is, is that similar to other works you've done? Like how, like that was so particular and beautiful. Was that a long time in the making or something you just whipped out of your Hudson community? I think that was like, kind of like a life's work. You know, I feel like everything, every opportunity, every like preoccupation of mine, like landed with that um, installation. And, you know, it was like inspired by moving to Hudson and then like reading about how Susan B. Anthony had spoken in that historic building in our city and how that building was originally, although it was called the Hudson Opera House, you know, in the nineties, it um, historically was more of like a civic center for the town and thinking about its history and like what is a like modern ritual storytelling gathering cathartic event was like just came together with meeting with Tammy Dillon who was is the executive director and she was like what do you want to do and I and I said there's this opera by Gertrude Stein talk about queer queer subcultures an opera by Gertrude Stein and Virgil Thompson called the mother of us all which is kind of about Susan B Anthony but it's really about Gertrude Stein but it's really just about like the human voice or like the human questions of like who am I and does anybody hear me and it's funneled in this in this loose narrative through the um the struggle for women's suffrage in the U.S. and Tammy was like oh well there's all these grants right now for the centennial celebrations of women's suffrage and so it just felt like totally kismet yeah. to get to do it in this building and have it funded and then the casting really came out of like okay there's 30 roles in this opera the only way to really pull that off is just to like reach out into the community into the larger Hudson area and just start trying to find people who love to sing that was really that was like the um requirement yeah it was a requirement it was just yeah. one of people who loved to sing and and pretty people is a lot yeah it was huge and um then there was like 10 people in the orchestra and then we had about 10 people backstage so this amazing um community formed itself around this project which is on paper like a really absurd avant-garde dense thing but yet it became like a real like social gathering spot and uh, I love that. I love the way it galvanized the town. I loved yeah. how people participated in it. I love the people who are still talking about it. Um, thank you for bringing it up. Oh, yeah. It was highlight in terms of Hudson-based work, you know, and that's, again, why, why I'm happy to be celebrating you right now. And I actually am excited that I have a Roddy opera story to tell as well, which is that I somehow, and I believe it was the premiere, somehow got to see Roddy's opera Sasquatch in Edinburgh a few years ago it was a complete coincidence that my family was on vacation in, a, in Scotland and it happened to be it was the Edinburgh fringe right it was yeah it yeah. was and talk about avant-garde opera that was so radical and mind-blowing you're gonna have to do do it more justice to explain but I jaw floored I remember writing you like late that night my review of just the way you managed to bring, and we are talking the most gutter punk meth darkness <laughs> into electronic yet operatic. The casting was insane. It was so incredibly wild. And I was so proud. This is why I love Roddy is that your own individual. No one else is ever going to make that opera ever. Only you. And I'd like you to explain how Sasquatch came to be. And it sounds probably like the Edinburgh Fringe like helped you bring it to life, right? Speaking of other good yeah, art totally. centers. And yeah, I had been living in Los Angeles for a long time and I had sort of stopped playing with my band. I had done my rock band for so long. And I moved back to Los Angeles where I grew up and I was doing a lot of film score stuff which sounds like a lot of fun and it is and can be a lot of fun. But at the end of the day, like I had been doing it for a while, maybe 10 years or something. And it wasn't that fulfilling. And it kind of just struck me. I don't know how, but at one point I was just like, this is not what I want to be known for. Like sprinkling, sprinkling a little bit of music 
onto someone's like big creative project. It, it felt like I was uh, not doing enough and I was selling myself short. When I feel like I had stories to tell and kind of a bigger sort of like bigger project I wanted to share. So I just, for some reason, I just like, I, I, I knew I wanted to do an opera. I wasn't like an opera kid like URB. I didn't really know opera, but I had kind of like just been looking at it. And then like one summer in LA, I saw Aida and I was like, really started heavily getting into opera. So I was really into it and I figured, okay, I don't want to do this film score stuff anymore. And so I decided I was going to move to New York because it felt like New York was the place where I should go and create an opera. And I had this story that's a crazy story about Sasquatch. And it was just like kind of a fairy tale, really dark story about like um, Sasquatch, a monster in the forest. And I kind of coupled like that character with like a family that lives in the forest. That's like, it was their job to sort of like, or they had a scam in which they took tourists on a tour of um, Sasquatch country with a promised sort of sighting of Sasquatch, but it was all a scam. They had the brother who was a meth head, a crystal meth person. They had, they dressed him up in a Sasquatch costume and they would charge tourists to come and they say, we'll take you through the forest and you could see Sasquatch. And the brother was just hiding in the forest and that was their scam. And there's another, there's a daughter involved too. And he, she's kept in the cage with the father who's an alcoholic. And he's sort of like um, the maestro of the whole operation. But uh, that's how the opera starts. And then at one point, the, uh, the son and the daughter rebel against their father and they escape into the wild. And the daughter comes across the real Sasquatch in the forest. And she sees him and he has a tick from the forest stuck in his ear and he can't get it out. And he's trying to get the tick out of his ear and he's crying in the forest. And uh, she helps him get the tick out of his ear. She sucks the tick out of his ear and they fall in love. So that was basically the story. The thing that uh, I was most interested in was just the pathos of like a creature, like a big monstrous creature who, uh, surprise, is, has a sophisticated sense of intellect and a big heart. I've always been drawn to those sort of characters like Frankenstein or like the Elephant Man. I always like when I saw that movie and sort of like tapped into that character of like a horrible, like grotesque, like whatever it is, monster, but has like this intellect and this heart that's always so charming to me, even like King Kong, you know, characters like that. So I just really wanted to explore that. And so I came to New York and I met up with these people who live in New York called um, Experiments in Opera. And I did a short form version of that story with them. And they gave me a little bit of money. There was like six of us and we did sort of a showcase. And then I built it up to a full, full, full uh, long opera piece and I kind of workshopped it in New York and had a couple performances and then got a uh, fringe festival to uh, in Scotland to uh, help put it on there and it was a crazy crazy adventure doing that it was so much work like I mean you know Melissa I've been in bands all my whole life and you know what like a hard like slog that is but like there's nothing like RB I'm sure for you too but like putting on a production with I didn't have as many as you have we had like eight principal members in the cast and I think 10 musicians but full-on you know sets and uh production and Fringe Fest is just crazy like there's so many different shows going on at once like the the place that we put on our show there was a show before us and a show afterwards so every day we did 30 shows in a row 30 days in a oh row my gosh. and every day yeah it was so insane like there was someone before us and then we had 15 minutes in which to like get our set together get everyone in place and then 15 minutes after to strike it and put everything in this closet and like do the same thing the next day it was so much work super rewarding and really great but so much work. It's like, I don't know how people do opera. It's just, <laughs> I mean, I guess most people who do opera have a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of money going into it. So it made it difficult, 
but uh yeah it's just a, a lot i mean that's kind of the magic of opera too it's just like you know there's so much like the excess and the sort of like indulgence of like pulling off something as extreme as an opera is uh pretty special but yeah it's well, even just the production of you've got like a play sets and actors but then you have musicians and the sound of voice where the person is supposed to be able to walk around the production alone seems much more elaborate than usual but this is actually my question for both of you assuming that you both you know even though covid has changed a lot of the landscape and obviously traditional presentations of opera are not happening maybe they're coming back at the met any day i have no idea but um my question is, is it safe to say that opera, although you need, you know, there's the, the old school institutions. And like you said, you need a lot of money to put on like a real serious show. Both of your shows you're describing are like labors of love, community efforts, government funded or nonprofit supported, right? So those are both what I would consider, you know, in the community subculture underground. Um, and then there's this gigantic mainstream, like the orchestra world where there's this, but is opera surviving? Is it a mainstream? And maybe you could just, someone could tell me, RB, you would definitely know, but am I right to believe that opera like classical music, like Mozart was super mainstream a long time ago? Yeah. That has sort of, and it's now historians that have to hold its legacy to make it current. Like where well, is it? going yeah like i think it, it it started in the renaissance basically with a bunch of scholars who who got together and they were like what would happen you know what would what what would this art form be an art form that combines poetry and dramatic music or descriptive music and movement and if you put those three things together would that be something and yes it is <laughs> it's uh it's opera and then mostly that was funded by like courts and um, the aristocracy. And then you spin that a little further out and it's like, you know, Mo Mozart was like being funded by various courts uh, or writing for various patrons. And then you get to like, like Handel. Um, he's one of my favorite composers and he was writing in like the early 1700s and um he would put on shows in London that he was like self-funding them. He was getting the money together. He was the impresario. He was the conductor. He was whatever. And, and, you know, sometimes they'd be a wild hit, but then he would, you know, also just like have these huge um, disasters and other people, you know, were like, um, uh, trying to undermine him and sabotage him and try to, you know, Take, take the public interest someplace else, rival composers, that kind of thing. And he most of the time was like broke and like having to retreat to like spas and like get himself back together because like, you know, Roddy, as you say, it's like exhausting to put these shows on um, and the labor of love you can only sort of sustain for so long. And, um, but when he was writing, it was like the center of popular entertainment. And then you get into the 18th century when it became or the 19th century became something else. And then in the US, certainly it starts becoming this kind of like classed thing, like a status thing, like going to the opera is like, makes you have like a certain cultural cachet or understanding or whatever. And like the, the theaters were built to privilege the rich patrons who paid for them in terms of seating so you know the poor people were like up in the back where you can't see anything and the rich people were in these glamorous parterre boxes where you could see across the theater and watch your friends and um you know it was like it was social it was class-based um the show was like not important you know it was about the event um so i think like now we're in this place where there is then no opera on a large scale for like a year basically and it's trickling off into like online or smaller versions or whatever but you know i think that opera is a microcosm for uh you know any kind of system that needs to be reevaluated. and i loved melissa you calling it this like community subculture underworld um like i love 
like that to me, like getting back to the mother of us all, like that is like the fullest expression of my vision. It's like people are there because they want to be there. People are, you know, participating in this kind of center of the culture, cathartic ritual gathering that connects me to like something super ancient about like storytelling and, um, you know, how societies learn about themselves and avoid the mistakes of the past and, you know, celebrate the cycles of life and of the seasons. And, you know, so like, I think that's like a more interesting place to me than a place that's about like status and about like gossiping with your friends about, you know, what people are wearing and whatever. Well, that's, yeah. So we're it's re- reclaiming opera. I mean, which is like you said, poetry, set design. So it was all made by these artists that were funded by the rich and the elite. So it's part of like all reclaiming the power and the magic and the people and the art outside of these gigantic hideous systems. And so that's why I was excited in this conversation that I feel like in our avant-garde programming at Basilica that having an subculture underworld opera scene seems really exciting and important to the type of work that we present and why I wanted to knowing that both of you are very very alternative cool cats friends of mine I wanted to sort of explore where you know because I have this this glamorous other friend Rufus Wainwright who I know you both know and have seen at Basilica and is a friend of mine from growing up and we sang in choirs together and I watched him be possessed by opera his entire life and and when he did that you know he's done two operas now and he's presented them at pretty major opera houses and it was sort of through his eyes in the past 10 years that I was trying to understand where is opera going you know because I've always been from the underworld and the alternative I've never thought about what the old historic or the mainstreams are going you know, obviously major labels and old school music, music industry stuff. I know all about that. And I know what I don't like about that. But in terms of like these ancient musical art forms and how they are now, it's very abstract. Actually, I did have a super interesting conversation. My last podcast was with the executive director of SPAC, support, uh, Saratoga Performing Arts Um place it's like a gigantic pavilion that is the home of the new york ballet and other symphony orchestras no opera was mentioned but it was very interesting to speak to her in terms of one of these gigantic destination built by the rockefellers like almost 100 years ago like these performing art centers that have you know i guess still the old school deep pocket monies that would probably like opera but do they even know what to do with it like i would look at the two of you and my friend rufus as the people who would know what to do with opera right now you know what i mean and what i was exciting in hearing rufus when he was first approached by the met who i believe were the people who workshopped and and funded the beginning because i went to an opera with him at the met when they were courting him Mm. and maybe he was too weird for them and i can't remember what actually ended up happening but i remember him saying with me as his date in the fancy seats in the front you know they're looking for the new face of opera i was like cool that's exciting like some montreal you know child of folk singers uh, but found opera as his main thing and i like what i am trying to kind of understand is what other than COVID, of course is does the opera world need people like you to save it? Roddy? Yeah, I feel like I did something so different than typical opera. It felt <laughs> good to do. Like my, my orchestration was crazy. The music was like, but I don't know. Like I see modern opera. Modern opera is so weird. That's what I want to know like, is what is happening way in modern weirder opera. Than, yeah, I mean, we listen to weird. Like, I mean, Drone Fest is weird, but like modern opera is really fucking out there. Really? Like, it's like Yeah, it's just like you can't like, I mean, it's not like a, it's never, I mean, the stuff that I've seen RB, like, you know, as well as I do, but it's not like, there's not like um, motifs you can clearly follow, like musical motifs. It's just really out there. It's really extreme and weird. 
So mm -hmm. it was hard for me to accept, like, I didn't like, that's about as far as my opera experience went. I mean, I'm still working on opera and trying to get stuff done, but it's like, it's hard for me. It was been hard for me to get attention and sort of permission, if you will, to carry mm -hmm. on in bigger forums. Because I, I consider myself like aptly odd and weird and esoteric. And if I was holding the reins in the big world of opera, I would say, yes, him, bring him in. Like, I don't know, it's me, it's about the stories and about the sort of the weirdness and pushing boundaries. Yeah. I just don't know how you get into those sort of- uh, Scenes maybe is what it is. Like, yeah, permission to do yeah. it. Like, I don't know, certain, like Rufus has done great. Like he's done, like people have hired him. I, I, I'm I, curious as to how that yeah. came about. You're you making know? me think. I don't know, there's, uh, Nico Muli has done okay. like super highfalutin, like big budgety, like opera stuff. Um, Thomas Addis is like a modern composer that's like crazy, does weird shit. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know who makes those decisions or who foots, foots the bill on sort of big productions, but um, let's the three of us meet that person and see if we can set up. <laughs> totally. Something. Yeah, so Something. we have a good venue. Maybe you need more avant-garde venues that are thriving or like um, excited to bring avant-garde opera to the masses or the small local community. Yeah. RB, do you feel like, because well, but Rada, you mentioned the experiments in opera group. So like RB, are there organizations in New York, which I would assume is like the heart of opera and right i mean I, I know that la has a big you know uh devoted opera totally. crowd like my friends go to the operas there um but wh who are like the leaders in new york who are the gatekeepers do you know them do you work with them <laughs> probably yeah i know i know a few of them um yeah i think there's a lot of there's a lot of interest in new music there's a lot of funding for new music and experimentation um which is great because i think like the that was the point I was trying to make about it, the earliest foundations of opera are like experimental, like what happens if you put these things together? And I think like a, a problem with these institutions and the gatekeepers at like larger institutions is that they don't really want to experiment. They want to hand their audience something very familiar. And unfortunately that becomes something that's very old fashioned and very ultimately dictated by like the money of the people on the board who want to see, who maybe have, different values other than, you know, the kind of values that I'm talking about, which are about like community and about like, just like seeing wild, wild, sing a, a diversity of wild singers, a diversity of aesthetic points of view in what these things look like. And, um, you know, I think also there's a lot to be learned from these pieces of the past. Like there's a lot of new operas that I don't think are very good because I don't think they like, satisfy musically like they're not fun to listen to and they don't like describe anything like an opera is a story about people and they're having an emotional experience and the music to me needs to to like make you as a viewer feel the experience of the character and uh so like i have a lot of fun with these like baroque operas which i think like the melodies are great they were like like Handel, who I already mentioned, he was like the pop, pop, he was writing pop music basically mm -hmm. for his era. And so like, they're fun to listen to great melodies, great themes. And, you know, if somebody's singing about like how they feel like they're in a tempest and they're full of rage, the music like sounds like that. And so you like, as a spectator get this like totally visceral thrill, um, mm -hmm. you know, it should be fun at the end of the day. Like right, as it's an art a form. decadent fun, yes, because yeah, it, it has all the senses. and Yeah, and it's very human, you know, it's about mm -hmm. human emotions and like, Roddy, I love your story about the Sasquatch and like, you know, it's like a kind of extreme dark story, but it's also like, you know, poetically, like it's like a universal story, which yeah. is like perfect for opera, I think. Thank you. And I guess the, the the thing we can't forget about opera literally is the power of the human voice and that gymnastics ability of, I mean, even though RB, you were saying like your, your, your amazing team at the Hudson Hall Opera were mostly amateur, you know, passionate singers, but 
I guess that has a lot to do with that, that question of how much gymnastics does an opera singer need to be able to do to blow a traditional opera fan's mind, <laughs> right? Is it like the composition that has to be, and then, and this like sports mentality, um, it really, I, I do want to actually super follow up. The Baroque happens to be in my very, uh, like broad sense of love of classical, uh, mine and Tony's favorite at home personally. And we were trying to do a lot of homework in the last few years of Baroque and I have not checked out Baroque opera. So I am going to make that part of our neighbory, neighbory, uh, egg exchange or whatever. I would like to learn more about that. And I do actually, you know, I suppose part of like the direction this conversation could go in is, you know, the future of opera. Yes. But the future of your individual works and how me as a co-founder of Basilica trying to create a world where anything can happen and that people in our network who are most of all pushing the boundaries, which is what we love the most about having an art center is hosting people who whose work push the boundaries are innovative and and this idea of like reclaiming opera to be experimental bliss is really exciting (laughs) and i do think we should continue the conversation why i wanted the two of you to meet um but i i guess do you do you want to share a bit about i mean for example i want to highlight roddy you in covid put out a totally pop rock dream new band called man on man and in celebration of pride i'm definitely going to find a way to put clips of that music in this podcast because i feel like it makes me want to be gay it is the most exciting happy (laughs) happy man on man with the short pseudonyming mom m o m is a duo of roddy and his partner and i'm so excited you know like that's where you can make that in your sleep when i introduced it to my daughter and my husband i'm like roddy can make these songs just like sleeping that you know pop is easier than opera correct (laughs) i mean maybe i'm i'm downplaying pop because we you know but i know pop so i know how fun it is when you have it to just make these catchy hooks and melodies um and it's just the two of you and i know you're gonna start getting out there you released an album want to tell us some more about man on man yeah, it's a project that Joey and I, my boyfriend and I started. We were sort of like at the onset of um, the pandemic. We kind of got panicky in New York as things started to go down. And my mom was getting sick in California. So we kind of got in this truck and just drove to California to help take care of my mom who was getting sick. And um, just on the way there, it became clear like, okay, we're going to have to quarantine for a little while. So just as a way to sort of like keep creative and keep busy when we were in quarantine, we just like when we were driving, we uh, bought a microphone and had it meet us at the house that we were going to quarantine in. My mom had this place in Oxnard, which is like 50 miles north of Los Angeles. And we stayed there for a couple of weeks. And I had the piano that I grew up playing is in that house. And Joey had his guitar with him and he's a musician. And we've been together for about a year, but we'd never done music together. And we just as a way to sort of pass the time and deal with the anguish and the trauma of like, honestly, like getting across the country in that state, uh, we started to make music just to sort of as a cathartic sort of place. And we started basically just writing kind of love songs to each other. And then it kind of blossomed into a whole thing. We made a video that was like kind of provocative and got banned on YouTube for like being uh, too racy or whatever. And that sort of like, really pissed us off and we started to fight back on that regard. And then we started getting like a lot of like fans and people or like gay people who felt represented in a way that they hadn't before by queer music that sort of spoke to a different demographic rather than like a four on the floor disco beat or whatever, like twink sort of like, I mean, stereotypical kind of like queer music vibe and sort of it turned into sort of a community sort of like, based band and we started a a magazine at that time called Chosen Family. We started a a pen pal program for queer people kind of across the world to kind of get off social media and write each other. We like took everyone's names and matched people up and put out a record and made videos all at the same time. And then uh, a a record company liked it and put out the record for us. And now we're sort of like dealing with 
how to do it live, which is challenging, but it's been really fun. It's a weird thing. I've never done that before, like made music or a project with a boyfriend or a love. It's really intense. <laughs> it's crazy. It sounds oh, like I such a beautiful project. Right? Yeah, it's really, it really is. At its best, it's really beautiful. It's hard to get through though. I don't know, like, I mean, Melissa, I know you do stuff with Tony, like you guys put stuff on together, but just like coming to, I know, well, making decisions together, making creative decisions. And I find too, like two men making creative decisions together, there's a lot of pride involved, you know? And it's- uh, Oh, it's so hard. It's hard to, I mean, it's, it's, it's a learning experience, but it's hard to like open up your heart in that way and like move forward and make decisions and make things work. But it, it's been really fantastic. I love it. We practiced today, we formed a band and we just had- practice all week because we're doing these performances but it's uh where's yeah, it's your performances where are they gonna be the first live performances we're doing like uh kexp you know that radio station in seattle we're doing like a, a thing with them on saturday and then on sunday we're doing like a pride um streaming thing and then we're doing a big uh, a huge festival in september like a real life festival where people are there with no masks and in new york thousands no it's in chicago it's called riot fest oh yeah it's like a big like, thing that's our first technically our first big performance i mean awesome. you made the most out of covid roddy i mean and, and it really <laughs> yeah. what's amazing about the project is i didn't even know about the pen pal part i definitely could tell through the music videos and all of your friends doing their iphone and you know film it's like the music videos feel like a family the chosen family thing is so clear and palpable in every part of that project and i really you know i'm always very supportive of all your projects but i find this one to be especially in this like kind of lonely hour and people coming back into their worlds and feeling you know, both vulnerable in that we really only have our immediate families or our immediate loves or neighbors, and you don't really have the rest of the world. It's a really heartwarming and um, timely project that is clearly comes from a love that came out of that kind of um, vulnerability. So thank you for sharing it for the world. Thank and I'm so excited. Thank you. And we will definitely have you play a basilica you actually played with your other amazing band at the last soundscape right. so we had just yeah i mean also incredible i mean yeah. but um rb what tell like it's so i know i missed a private viewing of a diorama of oh, one yeah. of your new productions so i know <laughs> you've been working on something other than chickens and your marriage <laughs> so tell me what's happening and how did the diorama exhibits go and uh, what are you working towards yeah i mean when everything shut down i was i was just about to start rehearsal for an opera and so that was that was weird um to suddenly be stuck in my house and like have, you know, cause for me, it like to, you start prepping months and months in advance and you start building up a kind of like internal rhythm to prep, to go and do this work. And then for it not to happen, like I had nothing to do. I had all this energy and nothing to do with it. So I was sitting in my house and started thinking about um, a show that I would have been doing right now. Um, and I just to like keep myself off the news, I started working on it, like right at this desk, just on the corner of my desk, I printed out like the floor plan of the stage that I was supposed to be doing a show at. And I just started printing out pictures from Pinterest and like shoving them into this space and making like a little set model and trying to figure out the piece and try to imagine what it would be like to be in this theater experiencing this opera. And that really brought me in touch with like a like very fundamental childhood solitude thing. Like my dad built me a like a puppet box when I was a kid and I would spend most of my time like alone, talk about like queer solitude, alone in my room, listening to operas, taking like found pieces of cardboard and like making little worlds and like fantasizing. And um, so, 
it was weird to like get back in touch with that <laughs> after so long. And then, uh, you know, as the months went on and more work got canceled and things just got darker and sadder for me and there were some family health things going on. And then my parents were moving out of their house. So I went back to my childhood house and, and found this set box that my dad had built me. And so I took that back to Hudson and uh, I also got a studio eventually in like July of last year. And I started, um, I was just so sad and like depressed and like didn't know who I was or what was going on. And um, I started doing these paintings with just found paint. They were, they're these weird abstract paintings and they like became for me a kind of substitute for interpersonal like eroticism basically, um, you know, they were like mysterious and delightful and um, yeah. So I was just like in the studio with these abstract paintings, like really sad, not really being able to articulate what was going on. And that just, that got worse and worse until like uh, last December, my husband was, uh, my husband does a nutcracker in town every year. He's a dancer and choreographer and uh, researcher and gardener and kind soul. And he uh, does this Nutcracker, which is like community sourced, gets local dance groups to, to um, like use it as a platform for them to come in and like do the Sugar Plum Fairy Dance. And then he, um, he's, he has created this like narrative of um, the Rip Van Winkle story by um, Washington Irving, which is set in the Catskill Mountains. And so he uses that story set to Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker music and it's like such a cool, weird, <laughs> obscure mashup that totally works. Um, Tchaikovsky was gay, closeted gay guy. So uh, that that was um, that was coming up, and they obviously weren't going to be able to do it because of COVID and no live performance, blah blah blah. And I said, no, we have to do it because you do it every year, and we've got to keep the traditions going. And I said, I'll make you like a puppet version. <laughs> and uh, so I just took this, you know, miniature stage box that my dad had made me and I started like just like again on Pinterest finding like images of interesting looking people and started collecting materials and eventually made like a little puppet box version of the Rip Van Winkle story and Adam like found like an audio book of it and underscored it with Nutcracker music and we started performing it live in the windows of the Hudson Opera House just for like passers-by and that was like the first like interaction it was like just so cool to be like on the other side of a pane of glass but have people stop and have people interacting with something that like was performative and had a beginning middle and end and had some storytelling to it and it was also pretty queer like the the figure I ended up using for um Rip Van Winkle was like this shirtless skater boy I found because I just felt like he he had like the right vibe for <laughs> for that character and um so it definitely was not like your Shelley Duvall um, mm -hmm. uh, tale theater, um, Rip Van Winkle. Um, but anyway, so that sort of emboldened me to then go back to this opera design that I'd started in the early days of the shutdown. And I sort of like fleshed that out and finished it. And eventually that show got canceled. And so I just decided the other night to like, show it to people in my studio. So I just like got some wine, put on like the recording of it that I love and just started setting up the scenes for people. And um, it was so cool. Like the, the, it was pouring rain. Not a lot of people came, but the people who did like stayed the whole time and were totally wrapped. And it just felt like, um, you know, like, I don't think that's necessarily like, the future but um well I think well I think I, what I think was really great about it was like getting to getting to share for me getting to again share this art form with people that I love and to share it with people who are not like an opera audience just like people who are interested in art or storytelling or music and just see how this opera from 1735 could totally capture people's attention and hold their attention for like three plus hours as long as you've got like 
some socializing going on and, you know, some drinking wine and going outside and having a cigarette and then coming back in, which was actually like how people watched that opera when it premiered. It was like a bunch of, you know, they, back then they didn't turn the lights down. People weren't like uptight and, and sitting quietly. Like you went to the opera to chat with your friends and, you know, meet up with someone to hook up with and gam people would gamble and, and um, you know, it was like sexy and fun and like a party. So if there, so maybe that is the future for me is like, I want to be in more situations that feel like a party that are for anybody, not for um, like an elite group um, and people who just want to have like a good time and listen to some great music. And like, that's well, the energy that I, that I really respond great. to. Great. I mean, that's uh, obviously where Roddy and I both come from in the world of rock music and in the underground at like what you described at that you know your studio it's it's DIY it's local community art it's you as a conceptual artist who put on a diorama live performance in your art space like that that is the eternal timeless heart of art and sharing that I know I come from that I try to bring to the small masses at Basilica. And so to me, that sounds like a great future and a very great place for you to be, <laughs> especially because um, you you are at a crossroads. I appreciate also you explaining this, the vulnerability that you were in during COVID. And I know I would say the majority of people also experienced some scary fear, lost dark times. So I understand um, you know, it's actually kind of amazing because you mentioned like queer solitude or just these the, how alone you were in that in that sadness. But it's pretty remarkable because we know we were not alone because so <laughs> many people were going through that. And um, and both of you found solace in a very small scale art project. And that is, you know, everything that I have been trying to imagine what our purpose is, especially in the last year with Basilica being closed and as Tony and I being art artists ourselves that have wanted to provide the space for art, it's been the question of what are we or where are we going? And, you know, we also have other realms of like green and, and local economies, but everything really is about small scale. I mean, the whole problem with the world is the giant mass scale money grab, you know, power control problem <laughs> this is our problem we know it which is why you know we we think about the neighborhoods we live in we think about where we who we want our neighbors to be and what's important is that if we're ever in lockdown again that our life means something deep and personal and local to us and you know that's that's for us the, the you know the privileged people who were able to actually eat sleep be in good health during such an extreme global pandemic. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of humility that's coming out of this moment. And also just a lot of like simple grounded uh, reality check. And that's, you know, I thank you both for sharing. Cause I know Roddy, your, your trip back home, you both described actually going to your childhood homes, your, your puppet box, your piano, <laughs> and, you know, so much, uh, going deep for both of you during this time. And thank you for, for sharing it with me, your trusted friend and the few opera pride Basilica fanatics listening. Um, and I, I think that was, that was really exciting. We touched on a lot of uh, bizarre highlights, like Rip Van Winkle and Sasquatch, like bizarre <laughs> <laughs> myths of, I don't know where. Yeah. And then um, forest, you know, forest, forest folk. Yes, forest folk, pen pals, dioramas. I mean, this was where I was hoping we would go. This is where I've been, you know, living since uh, art school myself, and I love it. <laughs> Thank you both. Any? Um, Thank you. That was fun talking. Yeah. Any last questions for each other? Um, other than, would you like to work together on an opera experimental yeah, that be weirdo yeah. opera at Basilica? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> I think we can make it work. I just live down the road a little bit. <laughs> yeah we'll figure it out okay great i'd love to yeah i love a collaboration and it's like it's a very unique uh individual that sort of gravitates towards this art form you know yeah um i, I have friends here but honestly like uh i don't know i'm not gonna 
talk shit about opera people, but <laughs> they're an odd breed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's hard to connect sometimes. Well, maybe I'll continue being the connect between yeah, two of you. Yeah. I'd love to. Okay, good. And Roddy, you'll you'll be passing through Hudson soon enough, and we can have a, sure, yeah. a little backyard meetup. And uh, Basilica would love to see a creation of the two of yours in our weird, lonely big halls. You know, we are only slowly coming back. And um, we do have the time to imagine 2022 and all the experimentation coming back to life. So let's stay in touch. And thank I you so it. much. Please, okay. please, please, please. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, RB, for talking. That was really nice. Yeah, it was great. great to hear what you've been up to. Same. Bye, you guys. Ciao. Thanks. Well, I enjoyed that virtual tea with my two old friends, RB and Roddy Bottom. And to set us off into the great unknown, uh, we're going to play a track from Roddy's new project, Man on Man.
thank you for listening. And to learn more about Basilica Hudson, head to our website, basilicahudson.org, where you can see upcoming events, sign up for our newsletter. You can also sign up for our Patreon to get early access to podcast episodes, discounted tickets, exclusive playlists, and more. But be sure to follow us on social media at Basilica Hudson on all platforms. Take care, listen well, and hope to see you at the factory soon.